All right. Well, we are in Genesis chapter 7. Figured three days worth of rain, good opportunity to talk about a flood. A little different kind of a flood, but actually the study is evidence for the flood. So today's study is going to be a little more of an apologetic approach. And looking at the idea, is there really evidence that chapter 7 took place as a historical event in the earth, or is this just Hebrew mythology, something that you know you can find in any literature? And of course, I don't believe that. I believe this is an accurate account, and so we're going to take some time to establish that. Last week, we read of God's plan to judge the world, but he saw a man named Noah, and that he could show grace to him, and he did, and raised him up, and his three sons, their wives, his wife, to build an ark. It would have taken quite some time that would, they would go on it, and then the animals would go on with them, and the Lord would be able to repopulate the earth again at the end of the flood that he was going to bring. Because in those days, the wickedness of man was great. Actually, in chapter 6, it says it's all he thought about all the time, was devising and planning evil. And the Lord was sorry that he had even made man, but Noah found grace in his sight. Um, as I mentioned, many deny that there was ever a thing that is, we're going to read today of a worldwide flood. Peter talks about that, and at the end of our study, we're going to turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3 and read that passage. I know we've looked at it last week. I want to look at it again. And, and he's going to give the reasons why. Um, people don't, they're living in their own lust. They don't want to be held accountable. And so they deny that God held people accountable. Therefore, the most accountable moment the world ever had up until that point was the great flood. And they said, did not happen. But there's a second reason why people deny that. Closely related. But it's because this idea of a worldwide catastrophic flood that changed the surface of the earth challenges the evolutionary model that explains the current geological world we see. And this evolutionary model clings to a belief called uniformitarianism. Uniformitarianism is the idea that things have never changed in this world. It's just through slow, gradual, natural processes that this world has been going through its days and years, and for them, millions of years. And therefore, it's a very predictable way to measure uh, time and rocks and uh, former living things. And so, because there's never been a disruption to that, we can accurately predict the age of the earth. But if you add in the idea of a catastrophic worldwide flood, you no longer have this idea that the, um, the world is going through the slow, gradual uh, process of change. It's not been impacted by a worldwide flood. And so people will reject the, uh, this idea of the flood because that evolutionary principle of uniformitarianism. Now, not all would make that big of a deal of it, but most would. So this chapter 7 stands as a repudiation of that idea and it is therefore challenged. But you know, beyond the Word of God, one thing that I think is very interesting in this whole idea of there being a flood is there's over 40 cultures that have flood accounts that have been handed down through the generations. 
When I was on, in, in the Philippines on the island of Palawan, I went into this little tiny museum, and as I was reading some of the history of the island, I came across this one little article that was an account of um, their, their tradition of a worldwide flood. It was amazing as I read it. The similarity to uh, the Genesis account, it wasn't word for word, but it was, you couldn't read Genesis 6 and 7 and read this and not make an, an immediate and obvious comparison. So I went up to the person at the, the desk and I said, you know, I'd love to get um, this, this article. Is there a way I could get it by a copy of it or is this somewhere? And she goes, hang on a second. She walks over there, she grabbed it, she photocopied it, and she goes, there you go. <laughs> a different kind of museum than we're used to. And I really was, I wanted to get that and just read it to you, my you know, highly prized photocopy, but um, it's still packed away. But the point just being that there are, there are dozens of these accounts from many different cultures. And so we shouldn't be surprised. Um, there's an interesting parallel that exists between the opening chapters of creation and these chapters of 7, 8, and 9 that we'll be getting today and over the next coming weeks. And the parallel is this. In chapter 1, verse 2... We see that in the beginning, the world was covered with water, the deep. Chapter 1, verse 2. And here, in chapter 7, verse 11, we're going to see that the, uh, the, the, the ocean's deep was broke open. In the beginning, dry land began to emerge, chapter 1, verse 9. So the Lord formed dry land. Here, we're going to see in chapter 8 that the waters begin to abate after the flood and that land reappears. When Noah came out of the ark, he was commissioned to be fruitful and multiply the earth just as Adam and Eve were in the garden at the beginning of creation. Noah planted a vineyard in chapter 9, verse 20, whereas God had planted a garden there in the opening chapters, chapter 2, verse 8. And this garden was the occasion for sin. Noah sinned, was drunk, and was found naked, and Adam's integrity was... Uh, Ended up falling, but a sign of his integrity was his nakedness. And you see these interesting parallels that are going on. Where you have the world that's without form, it's without um, you know, land or animals or trees. And that's what we read in the beginning. And then we come to the creation. But now we're coming to the place where, if you will, things are going to be uncreated. They're going to be destroyed. And it's going to come back to the way it was at the very beginning, where the whole earth is going to be covered with water. Every piece of dry land is going to be covered at least by about 25 feet of water. So the highest mountains. And so this is what we're going to say. And then we'll see that the land begins to form again. And through natural processes this time, the earth is going to repopulate itself. So let's begin reading in verses 1 through 9. As God commands Noah to enter the ark, then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. That's saying something, because that was a wicked generation. You shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, male and female, two each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female. Also, seven of each birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days, I will, I will cause it to rain on the earth 
for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters were on the earth. So Noah, with his sons, his wife, his sons' wives, went into the ark because of the floodwaters of clean animals, of animals that are unclean, of birds, of everything that creeps. On the earth, two by two, they went into the ark to Noah, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. So you got the storm clouds are gathering. It's about to get terrible destruction. But you have this scene that you can't help but to, to wish that you could have been a part of, watching all the animals come gathering together. Lord just called them, and there they showed up in Noah's backyard. I wonder what the neighbors thought. I mean, first of all, he built this massive ship in the backyard, and now all these animals are showing up. It's like, what in the world is going on with this crazy guy? And the animals came, and they went on to, to the ark. And we read that there were uh, two each of the unclean animals and seven each of the clean animals. Um, Answers in Genesis did an estimate of how many animals do they think that would have had to come onto the ark um, to have repopulated the earth based on these numbers and types and kinds. And they estimated there would have been around uh, 1,400, just under 1,400 kinds of animals that would have come on with a total of about 6,700. Now that's not in the Bible, that's just an, an estimate from a group that loves the Word of God and is checking it out. Now remember last week I told you that Henry Morris estimated that you could this this ark could have housed 150,000 sheep. So their estimate is about 6700 animals made it on there. Um, you can debate it if you want, not going to find an argument with me. Why 7 days though? Why does he give them a 7 days, hey, get ready? And maybe it was just that. In 7 days you got to be on this boat. you got to be ready to go. And so, um, you know, you all know what it's like to travel. Last-minute preparation. Well, this is quite a travel they're going on. Last-minute preparations. Maybe it was for food or, you know, the necessary supplies. We're not told why, but one rabbinic tradition, and I just put this out there for information. I'm not trying to make a statement about it. But they say because the earth had to mourn the passing of Methuselah for seven days. Why Methuselah? Methuselah was the oldest human being that's ever lived on planet Earth. And the belief was, his name basically was, when you die, it comes. And that when he died, the tradition is, and been passed down through many sources, is that he, when he died, that is the year that the flood came. And so he died, there was seven days of mourning, and then the flood came. Again, that was a, a, a rabbinic tradition which may be helpful and maybe not. But Noah and his family are obedient and they enter the ark where they can find refuge, where they might find salvation. And so the question that I would have for you is, have you found refuge and found salvation? Not in a wooden ark, but in the atoning work of Jesus upon a wooden cross. He went and he died upon the cross that he might take the judgment of my sin and your sin upon his body. The first century world, actually the first century, the first world, the ancient world, the, the, the world of Noah and Methuselah, they didn't have that. Nobody was atoning for them. 
And so the world was judged in this massive flood. But the Lord does not want mankind to be separated from him and have to endure judgment. And so he lovingly provided his son to be one to take the judgment for our sins. Sin separates us from God, just like it does in relationships. You do something mean and hurtful and harmful to another person, you're separated from them. You might be able to repair that, but the immediate response is there's separation. There's a break. There's a breach in the relationship. Man's sin, doing things our own way and not obeying God, creates a breach between us and him that is punishable by death. But the Lord loves you, and he does not want you to have to bear that consequence in your own body. So he sent his son and punished his son Jesus for you. But just like with Noah, seven days, be on the boat. Don't miss it. Well, you've got to respond to the offer of the Lord. Oh, no, 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 no. I, I believe in the sovereignty of God, and I believe you know, God will bring in those that he wants, and those that he want, don't, doesn't want, they don't have a chance. No, I, I don't agree with that. I believe that God is so sovereign that he has given man the opportunity to respond. And those that feel like that's a challenge to the sovereignty of God, I would just say this. How big is your God? Is he big enough and sovereign enough to create a system that gives man free choice. Man having free choice does not mean it's outside of God's sovereignty and somehow he takes over. It just means God's big enough to do what he wants. Choose this day whom you'll serve. You're not willing to come to me that you might have life. God's not willing that any should perish. All of these verses indicate that man must make a decision. You know, Noah didn't, wasn't dragged onto the ark and the family with him. They came of their own free will. You've got to come to Jesus, for in Jesus you'll find salvation. He is the way, the truth, and the life. There is one way to get saved in the year 1656, which is the year the flood came. There was one way to get saved. People didn't come and say, you know what? Gopher wood? Why, why would you make it out of gopher wood? I am not getting on a boat that's made out of gopher wood. Why didn't you use oak, or why didn't you use this kind of wood? So narrow. This is the only means by which I can be saved? That's it. Well, then, I, well, I believe there are many ways to be saved. Well, the flood's coming in like one day now. You better get on the ship. And, and God has provided salvation in Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and life. And no one can come to the Father except through him. That's narrow. Jesus said so. And he said, Few are, there will be that find it. But broad is a path that leads to destruction. As a believer, don't ever feel embarrassed for saying that Jesus is the only way and hearing the challenge of somebody saying, but that's so narrow, because truth is narrow. Take a test at school and see what happens. You know, there's, there's things at your job that you've got to do. You've got to perform a certain way. There's a truth that, that they're, you know, operating by. We, we are surrounded by truth. And we live and function as a society. We don't want to live in a place where you don't know what anything is. So when it comes to the most important matter of all, our salvation, we think there's no truth. No, there's truth. The truth is Jesus Christ, and he is the way. And you must get on board with him if you want to escape the individual judgment that everyone will face apart from him when they pass from this life. So... Come on board. Jesus is looking for you to be saved. He's not wanting you to perish. Yes, he's a God of justice, but he's a God of mercy, as we just sang.
Let's keep on reading. Let's move on down into uh, verses 10 through 16 where we see the water that comes from above and below that floods the earth. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth in the 600th year of Noah's life and the second month and the 17th day of the month. On that day, all the fountains of the deep, actually all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven. So we talk about the deep, we're talking about the ocean, the seas. The windows of heavens were open and the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast after his kind, all the cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after his kind, and every bird after his kind, every bird of every sort. And they went into the ark to Noah, two by two, of all flesh, in which is the breath of life. So those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The Lord closed the door of this ark. So a very specific date is given. It's in the 600th year of Noah's life. It's the second month, and it's on the 17th day. So if we put creation at year zero, the birth of Seth, the third son, recorded son of Adam and Eve, was in 130. Enoch, godly Enoch, remember him? He walked with God and was not. He had the personal rapture. That was in the year 622. Then Lamech was born in 874, and Noah was born in the year 1056. So in his 600th year, it would have been 1656, the year that the flood came. That's going based upon the genealogies that we've already all read together. But what are these two water sources that flood the earth? Because people will challenge and say, listen, if it rained for 40 days, it doesn't matter how hard it is, there is not enough rain that would fall from the sky to cover the entire earth and to cover every single mountain. Okay. Well, the Bible doesn't say that's the only source of rain. There are two sources of water. Excuse me. There are two sources of water. And the first one very well might have been the greatest amount of water. And we read there in verse 11, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up. Go back to Genesis. Think back in the early chapter of Genesis when the earth was covered with water. And then God caused dry land to form. What happened to the water that was displaced by the dry land? Well, many believe what happened is that that water went into subterranean reservoirs beneath the earth's crust. And now here at flood time, you have the crust breaking up. You have the, the, the ocean deep, the floor of the ocean breaking up. And the word broke up, it's a powerful word. It's the word that is used in Zechariah 14.4 of Jesus' second coming when he comes back and he puts his foot upon the Mount of Olive and Olives. And what happens? Splits in two. Wide open valley is created. It's the same word that's used in Numbers uh, chapter 16, verse 31, when the sons of Korah came and said, Moses, who put you in charge? You take too much upon yourself. You think you're Mr. Big Shot. We don't like it. We need more power. And Moses said, well, I'll tell you what, let's let God decide. Lord, who did you choose? And at that very moment, an earthquake happened. The earth opened up, swallowed Korah and his family, and closed again. 
Now, the Bible's got some wild stories, doesn't it? And you know who got blamed for that? <laughs> Moses. Can you imagine? It's like, you did this. I, you're blaming me for opening the earth and shutting it like at the right time for the right people? No, that was God. But this is the word that was used. So it's a word that speaks of, um, one author says, breaking up of the fountains indicates violent earthquake action. So as the ocean floors are dividing and breaking, earthquakes are taking place. Let me read to you, and I'm going to, a lot of the information I get today, I have about seven or eight different authors that I've read that I'm actually using. Um, as I said, I am not a scientist, nor do I pretend to be one on TV. Okay? I'm just telling you, I'm not a scientist, all right? But I have... I have cited everything I'm going to share with you and have checked it on a couple of different sources. Henry Morris III um, writes what this scene might have been like with these earthquakes happening in the ocean floor and all of this water that had been pressed down now coming to the surface and flooding the earth again and covering it with water one more time. He writes, The subterranean reservoirs of water broke open Likely as steam mixed with magma, ocean floors erupted and gaped open. Water surged up and out. Land surfaces collapsed. Continental shelving was broken and sucked down into the widening maw of the ocean deep. And tsunamis began to heave back and forth across the land. Surfaces. Such geological energies would have triggered magma rents and volcanic pressures would have exploded into enormous fire blooms of such intensity that anything in their paths would have been incinerated. So there's a, there's a lot that we believe is, is caught up in that phrase, and the oceans of the deep broke up. Earthquakes and all the rest were taking place. The whole earth is changing. The continents, as we have them today, are being divided you have land maybe that wasn't in a place suddenly appearing, and you have water that is surging upward. And of course, there will come the time when the waters begin to abate that are going to cause great um, you know, gullies and canyons and you know, wa uh, washing away and sediment buildup. But what we read here is that the oceans of the deep were open, and all that water is coming back up, it would seem, that was once there to begin with. But there's also for 40 days, the windows of heaven were opened up. Now, there's a debate. Was there still this canopy of, the, of water around the earth? Remember, the, the mist came up from the earth and watered the earth. It wasn't through rain. It was through this gentle mist. Is that still what's going on? And is this canopy of water now collapsing? Or is this just with everything else that's going on with um, ash and moisture being you know, shot up into the uh, atmosphere? that now it could produce rainfall in conjunction with the oceans of the deep that would cover the entire earth. Whatever happened, it must have been a spooky boat ride. You know, I, I know a lot of you love to get on cruise ships. I, I really have no desire to do that. I, and here's the reason. I just say, I don't want to be stuck on one of those ships when everybody gets sick. You know, I, I mean, I'm, not, I'm not like... Uh, an agenda here, but could you imagine being, that would be like the worst cruise ship experience ever. 
tsunamis and animals and, I mean, just volcanic eruption. How it must have been just, uh, I mean, outside of the Lord keeping his hand on that ship. There's no way it could have survived, but the Lord provided salvation for them in that way. Let's read verses 17 through 24 as we see the world perish away. Now, as I read this, I want you to answer the question as I read. Was the author's intent to write about a localized flood that had limited impact, or was he writing about a global flood that had global impact? I didn't ask what you think or anybody else thinks. I'm saying, what does the text say in front of us? I'll read. Now the flood was on the earth 40 days. The waters increased and lifted up the ark and arose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth. And the ark moved about on the surface of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth. And all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. And the waters prevailed 15 cubits. I think it's about 25 feet or so upward. And the mountains were covered. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle and beasts, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life. All that was on the dry land died. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him on the ark remained alive. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. So before we talk about the scope of the flood, note that in verse 17 and verse 24, we're given two periods of time. The, the waters were flooding for 40 days. After the end of the 40th day, there was no more flooding taking place. And they were on that uh, ship, the waters prevailed, for another 150 days. So they, you know, a lot of times we think they were on the boat for four days. No, no. They, we're reading right now of 190 days, and then we're going to read again in the next chapter that they were on, I think it's for almost three, like 371 days, over a year. Because all of that water was not miraculously being spread out as Jesus, as the Lord did at the creation, but is actually going to just naturally abate. And that took a lot of time for it to go away and then for the ground to harden once again. So they were on there for quite some time. But about the scope of this flood, could the author have written anything more about it being a worldwide flood than he did? Every breath, every mountain, every hill, every animal, every man, over the face of the whole earth, under the heavens... Everything in this text is being written to speak of a global impact. And so those that want to say there's a localized flood begs the question, then why, if it took over 100 years for Noah to build this ark, why didn't he just tell them to go on a really long walk? Plenty of time. He could have traveled so many other places. And the animals could have followed him, or they were already there. I mean... It, it does not make sense to make an ark if this is just a localized flood. It's not like, you know, it happened, you know, instantaneously. There was a long run-up to this. 
So it doesn't make much sense. The idea that mountains are covered, you know, some 20, 25 feet, again, tells us that this was a worldwide flood. Again, cultures from around the world have this story of the flood. And um, no doubt, after they got off the ark, that story was well known and taught in the coming generations. And at the Tower of Babel, when they all were spread out throughout the world, they went away with that as the most memorable event in the history of their world. And so they went with it, and so all the cultures have this as well. Turn with me over to 2 Peter chapter 3, because Peter in his day was dealing with those that did not believe Genesis chapter 7, just like we see many people in our day not believing that Genesis chapter 7 should be taken seriously. 2 Peter 3, verses 1 through 9, and as I read this, pay attention to the last phrase of verse 4 and see if this sounds like anything that we've already discussed. Beloved, I now write you this second epistle, and both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, the scoffers will come in the last days, that would be our days, walking according to their own lusts, their own sinful ways, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? And that, we hear that. It's like, oh, you guys, Christians believe Jesus is coming back. I mean, it's been like forever. Don't you think maybe you got it wrong? You're following the wrong guy. Maybe it was recorded wrong. And they mock and they, they say, this is never going to come. And he says, this is, verse 4, And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. What's that? They deny Genesis chapter 7. People deny that there actually was a flood event. Why? Because they're walking in their lusts, it says. Their sinful ways. If they're walking in their sinful ways... And they say that there is no creator that would judge, then they can feel free to continue on their way. And they quiet their conscience, which does not change reality of judgment, but it makes them feel okay for a little while. He says, but they willfully forget that the earth was flooded. And it says, they say, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. God has never stepped in and intervened in this world. There's never been a great flood. Again, the, 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 one of the underpinning principles of evolution is uniformitarianism, which says all things continue as they were from the beginning. Slow, gradual processes. Yeah, a little punctuated, you know, catastrophic event here, one there. No big deal. It doesn't disrupt the whole system. But a worldwide flood, flatly denied. Because you, if you have an event like what we just read about of the oceans of the deep breaking up and the flood and this massive runoff that would have come as the waters abated, now suddenly you have an event that would have changed the surface of the earth. And they are banking on the fact that as we look at 
Life over the last, you know, thousands of years, it's had this slow, gradual process of decay. But if you insert flood, now all of a sudden, you can't rely upon the strata and the rocks and the dating methods to give you an accurate number that gives you hundreds of millions of years. Henry Morris, oh, I didn't finish reading this section. Let's, let's keep on reading verse 7. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. In other words, God's going to judge the world again. That's why they want to deny the flood. If, they, they, if it happened once, it can happen again. But if it never happened, then leave me alone. But beloved, do not forget this one thing. That with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Just like he was patient in Noah's day, and Methuselah living longer than anyone else, and then the flood coming, extending his life. So the Lord is being patient and extending his coming to judge this earth again because he does not want anyone to perish. This is the reason. Henry Morris um, III has a book called Unlocking the Mysteries of Genesis. It was written in 2016. And I've used this book a lot. I, I think you would find it really interesting. If this is stuff that you find interesting, I'd encourage you to pick it up and read it. But he writes and he says, if this event happened with the geological and the hydrological phenomenon that um, would have forever changed the earth's surface, then this would undermine the concept of millions of years. So if this event really did happen, what would we expect to find in the world today? One of the things that he says, I just find it the most easy to wrap my head around, is this. He goes that, that the remains of bottom-dwelling marine life is found in every conceivable environment on planet earth today. Why do you find marine life in the middle of a desert? Why do you find marine life on Mount Everest? Why do you find it in every environment? Well, if the earth you know, changed its, its structure, if it was completely covered in water, and the animals were up there, and then the waters began to abate, and they got caught up in these you know, heavy drainages and, and mud, you know, encasing them as fossils, that's how you explain it. Of course, he also says, if this happened, you, we should expect to find vast graveyards of fossil deposits with creatures of every type and from every environment, violently killed, washed together, buried together, and fossilized rapidly, which is the only way you can fossilize. I mean, you don't, you don't see a cow that do drops dead in the pasture and come back, you know, you know, 100 years and see a fossil there. It's got to be encased rapidly to preserve it, and then that's how it forms as a fossil. He says you should find billions, and indeed, he says, entombed in those huge layers are billions of fossils that do not show any empirical evidence of evolutionary transition at all. So the evolutionist says that we've gone from a simple to a complex, and that there are millions of transitions between the most simple to the most complex, and yet the fossil record doesn't show us any of those transitional forms. We find highly complex, fully formed and developed um, types of, of animals and life. 
And so exactly what you would expect to find if there was a worldwide flood is exactly what we find. I find it interesting. I don't want to go too much into this because I'm really getting out of my uh, comfort zone here. But, you know, carbon-14 dating measures uh, uh, how old um, dead things are. So plants or animals. And they can measure them. But, they, but this dating method, they feel very certain that it, life cannot be measured De, you know, former life cannot be measured past 100,000 years. And yet they, they always are saying that these fossils are millions and millions of years old. But when they measure these, they find carbon. The carbon-14 uh, dating method shows that there's still um, some of those elements behind, which means they can't be older than that. Um, so these are the things that are pushed aside. Now, there was a recent event on a miniature scale of what we just talked about. And it happened on May 18, 1980, and it was the eruption of Mount St. Helens. There was a 5.1 magnitude um, earthquake that cracked open, and it caused a half a cubic mile of rock and ice to come sliding down the mountainside at 200 miles per hour and at 350 degrees hot down the north side of uh, Mount St. Helens. And it, it's just amazing. They knew it was coming. It's on video. There's all kinds of pictures of this taking place. The eruption lasted for nine hours, and the power is estimated to have been equivalent to one Hiroshima-sized atomic bomb detonating per second over this nine-hour period. And this is a small event compared to what we just read about in chapter 7. The eruption caused a landslide coming down the north uh, face of the, the mountain um, into Spirit Lake. All of this debris, all of these trees, over a million trees in six minutes were, were laid flat. And they all came into the Spirit Lake and the water just went gushing out, created, they estimate, a tsunami of 860 feet high. This was, this was quite an event. What's important is what it left behind, not so much the details of it. But um, of that, one more little fact there, of that, all those trees, it said it was 150 square miles of active timber that was leveled in six minutes, enough to have built 640,000 three-bedroom homes. This, this was a powerful event that took place. And so as this took place, took place, the things that they found afterwards is quite amazing because there was flooding and there was magma flows and there was ash and there were boulders and there was trees and all of this stuff. And it was creating mass devastation and completely changing, changing the landscape. They came back to the uh, and, and measured the years of a rock that was from the newly formed lava dome and as they did the test, it came back dating it as 350,000 years to 2.5 million years old. And we know for a fact that it was only 10 years old. Meaning that when catastrophic events enter into the world's uh, Earth's experience, it changes how, the dating, uh, how reliable the dating methods are. The other thing that we've heard so often, like in the Grand Canyon, is that this used to be a mighty river, and it slowly eroded, 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 and you left all these layers of sediment behind, and now you just have this little, you know, river down at the bottom of this massive canyon. 
Well, when Mount St. Helens blew, it made canyons 100 feet wide, 140 feet deep, like in days. And what they find now, if you look at it now, I saw an aerial view, is you got a little, little creek going through the bottom of it. And on the sides of these walls, you have all these sedimentary layers of ash and soil that were laid down and put in place just like what it looks like in the Grand Canyon. And so that which you used to you know, believe would take millions of years to be accomplished took place in a matter of minutes. And so Mount St. Helens stands as a testimony of not only is there evidence for a worldwide flood, of which I've already gave you, but this shows us the kinds of things that could happen. Now, if you put that on the scale of the whole wide world, you can understand why those that cling to the idea that there is no creator and therefore there is no judge would reject chapter 7 as being anything but just mythology, you know, Hebrew poetry. But in conclusion, we tend to forget things, don't we, as we read it there in 2 Peter. They forgot the flood. Israel, as they were delivered out from Egypt, they forgot how terrible their circumstances were. Do you remember that? Their children were being taken. They were being thrown into the Nile River. They were enslaved there in Egypt. But as they wandered in those wilderness 40 years, they began to miss Egypt. Do you remember that? Do you remember why they missed Egypt? Leeks and the onions. If you were to put that into our vocabulary today, they missed the spices <laughs> for cooking. They were tired of the manna. They had no flavor. And all they could think about were all the great cooking you know, spices and, and uh, ingredients they had back when they were in Egypt. And I can just hear, it's like, oh, man, I missed the onions and the leeks. Yeah, but they were killing our kids. Yeah, but we can always have more kids, you know? I mean... I mean, what's going through your mind to think like that? But here's the reality. We tend to forget the consequences and what life was like. That's why we're constantly reminded in Scripture to what? Remember. Remember where you've been saved from. Remember the grace that God has poured out on you. Remember the hope and the promise you have of everlasting life. This was the failure, Peter said, would come in the last days, that people would deny the flood. They would deny that there's another judgment coming because they want to live however they want to live. Listen, the Lord doesn't want you to follow him and walk in obedience because he's trying to kill all the fun in your life. He's wanting you to be protected. He knows what's best for you. He knows what will make you full. He knows what will make you complete. And he wants you to display your love towards him by obeying his word. We don't have to obey God. We get to obey God and say you are good and you are worth following. We don't know it all. You know it all. So we'll just take your word for it and we're going to obey you. And we must remember these things. There is a creator God who made this earth, who destroyed this earth, but found and showed grace to a man and his family and spared this world. And what we see today, all of humanity, all of the world's uh, animal life, all came from God showing grace and preserving them on that ark. But he's coming again. And he's going to judge the earth again, not with a flood, 
but with fire. And he's given the opportunity for man to escape, just like he gave Noah the opportunity to escape, by coming to Jesus. But you got to come to him. He's not going to drag you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your truth and your grace that you showed to, Mo, to, to Noah that here we are. It's trickled down to us. We thank you for that grace in the year 1656 when you prepared that ark and you preserved that family. Lord, it's amazing to us because the world we see today is beautiful. It's amazing. In the animal kingdom that you made, it is We love to just stare at it and look at it and study it. You are an amazing creator. And we look forward to the day when you come back and you recreate this planet one more time for your reign upon it. And Lord, we.